We are committed to working with state and local leaders to help secure our schools and tackle the difficult issue of mental health. Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. We have issues of mental health parity, and that when somebody dies, they don't look at it as a medical problem. Known far and wide as the Mad King, his was a reign of instability and terror. If I said to both of my children, who are nine and six, that there is something called a mental health day where they could take a day off school. It's good to be different, though, so. People that are different like that are in mental asylums. I'm not listening to you. You're crazy. We talk about mental health a lot. In the news, on television, with friends. We talk about mental health days and stress and anxiety and coping mechanisms. There's so much noise around what mental health is and how to maintain it, how to be well or complete. We talk about mental illness like it's easy. Like you've been knocked to the floor and you just need a little help standing back up. And maybe for some people, in some situations, it is. But there's so much we don't talk about. About the lack of access to healthcare. About medication. About how those mental health days and coping mechanisms often aren't enough. This is Overheard from Overlake Medical Center. A healthy dose of stories about award-winning, compassionate, and patient-centered care. Our care is all about you. I think there's this idea, especially here in the U.S., that you should be able to just pick yourself up. That you can self-medicate with bubble baths and relaxing vacations instead of seeking professional help. The United States is in a mental health crisis. It feels weird to say because it doesn't feel like a crisis, at least not to me, because I'm not involved. I'm not attempting to get a therapist and unable to because of my insurance or lack thereof. I'm not trying to decide if the stigma of taking medication or the fear of possible side effects is worth peace of mind. I'm not alone, worrying that something's wrong with me, with the way I think or feel and unwilling or unable to seek treatment. I'm not in prison because of symptoms or behaviors I couldn't control. I'm lucky. One of the challenges as a psychiatrist uh, that we have in uh, trying to treat patients and help our patients access treatment is that there still is a prevailing stigma, uh, cultural stigma, and self-stigma, we call it, uh, both inside and outside the individual, that really this feeling that something that occurs, a brain disorder that manifests as a problem in mental state or a mental disorder or a problem in, in behavior is somehow an issue that is a manifestation of a character problem or some defect of the individual as opposed to just a manifestation of a biological brain disorder. That's Dr. Kellen Koenig, physician executive and medical director of psychiatric services at Overlake Medical Center. Stigma around mental illness comes in many forms. The personal and cultural ones Dr. Koenig mentioned are hard to move past. They stick in your mind, become a part of you as you grow up. They're in the movies you see, 
in the books we read, and in the way we talk to and particularly insult each other. And surprisingly, even with all of this, all the stigmas and issues that remain, our mental health care really has improved. A lot. In this episode of Overheard from Overlake, let's take a look at how mental health care began, how those stigmas formed, and what we're doing to break them. Attempts to treat mental illness date back as early as 5000 BCE, when ancient cultures would chip a hole, called a trephine, into the skull using stone instruments. It was believed that through this opening, the evil spirits that were inhabiting the head and causing their psychopathology would be released, and the individual would be cured. Hippocrates, a Greek physician who lived in the 4th century BCE, theorized that it was the four humors, yellow bile, black bile, blood, and phlegm, that caused mental illness and not the work of gods or spirits. Of course, he thought everything was controlled by the four humors, so this isn't really a surprise. Hippocrates' theories were popular with physicians throughout the Middle Ages. In order to bring the humors back into equilibrium, patients were given emetics, laxatives, and were bled using leeches or cupping. But while that was the common treatment among physicians, the general public had a very different explanation for mental illness. Demonic possession. They cured victims with exorcisms, torturing and burning the possessed. It was a practice that continued for nearly 200 years, with thousands of people being burned at the stake or decapitated. The last witch hunts in the U.S. occurred in Salem, Massachusetts in 1692, with nearly 100 people accused and 19 executed. The body was really a mystery for a long period of time. Dissection of human corpses was illegal for hundreds of years, leaving much of the inner workings of the body unknown. But even with what we did know, mental illness still must have been particularly hard to understand. When you break an arm, you can see it. When you have a stomach ache, you can feel where the pain is coming from. But when you're depressed or manic or schizophrenic, you can't deduce where it's coming from. You can't pinpoint a cause of pain or see some symptom of the illness. It's a stigma we're still dealing with. We can't, uh, in the 21st century, always run a diagnostic test like an x-ray of the brain and say, this is where I have a biological brain disorder. This is why I don't want to get out of bed and why I feel so depressed I want to end my life. It's because I have a depressive disorder in my brain and the, these are the neurochemicals in my brain that are dysregulated and I need to get distreated. So we, that's, I think, part of the problem. Originally, care of the mentally ill was considered a family responsibility. But due to the shame and dishonor attached to mental illness, many hid their family members in cellars, caged them in pig pens, or put them under the control of servants. Others were abandoned completely. Asylums and mental hospitals were created as an alternative to home care, but they weren't actually aimed at helping. Instead, they were merely reformed penal institutions where the patients were abandoned by relatives or sentenced by the law and faced a lifetime of inhumane treatment. The most infamous asylum was St. Mary of Bethlehem, located in London, England. It began admitting the mentally ill in 1547 and soon earned the nickname Bedlam for its horrific conditions and practices. 
Violent patients were chained to the walls and put on display like sideshow freaks for the public to peek at for the price of a penny. Gentler patients were put out on the streets to beg for charity. Eventually, we began to understand that harming your patients or chaining them to walls wasn't really a useful treatment option. In 1793, physician Philippe Pinel was made head of the L'Hôpital Bicetre Asylum in France. He was upset by their treatment and released patients from their restraints. To everyone's surprise, this action was met with great success, especially from those suffering from melancholia, what we now call depression. At the turn of the century, England and France combined had only a few hundred individuals in asylums. By the late 1890s and early 1900s, this number had risen to the hundreds of thousands. And the average number of patients in asylums kept on growing. They were quickly becoming almost indistinguishable from custodial institutions, and the reputation of psychiatry in the medical world hit an extreme low. The publications of Sigmund Freud, an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist between 1888 and 1939, introduced a new method of treatment for patients called psychoanalytic theory. It involved bringing repressed fears or conflicts into the conscious mind using techniques such as dream interpretation and free association. It was popular among psychiatrists because it allowed the patient to be treated in a private practice instead of warehoused in asylums. You know that image you see on TV of a person laying on a couch while the doctor asked, how did that make you feel? Just relaxing on telling me about your id when you was a kid, yeah? That's Freud. The development of modern antipsychotic and antidepressant drugs in the 1950s pushed Freud's ideas into the background, and the field of biological psychiatry grew more popular. It's an approach that aims to understand mental disorders in terms of the biological functions of the nervous system. It's interdisciplinary, drawing on neuroscience, psychopharmacology, biochemistry, genetics, epigenetics, and physiology. It's the idea that mental disorders affect and are affected by other parts of the body. It is clear um, our 21st century conceptualization of health incorporates mental and physical aspects and is very integrated. So we know that disorders or illnesses of the mind have physical manifestations, and so-called physical disorders have mental manifestations. We also know that mental disorders are really biological and are medical disorders, just like hypertension or diabetes. So we know that depression or psychosis or anxiety disorders, there are very real changes in the brain that are biological that are manifesting as disorders of the mind or mental problems. So I think we are appreciating that we are complex creatures that are very interrelated and our mental processes and disorders are very much interrelated with our physical processes and problems and affect one another. And it works the other way around too. Dr. Daniel Fossmeyer, a neurologist at Overlake, spoke about common mental illnesses associated with his specialty migraines. So a study was done looking at patients with migraine and found that they're three times as likely to go on to develop anxiety and depression 
and vice versa. Patients with anxiety depression three times as likely to go on to develop migraines compared to the general population. So there is that comorbidity. Uh, in terms of what we're trying to do for the comorbidity of anxiety depression, um, we refer on to the uh, behavioral health clinic if need be, and they're very helpful to us. Uh, but most patients, interestingly, that I see are already being treated for their anxiety depression. So many of them come to me already on a, a SSRI or some medication specific for anxiety slash depression. So it's more that I am aware uh, and accept that patients who see me almost always have depression and anxiety. I know that's part of the migraine um, condition, uh, so I don't uh, judge them at all. I accept that and say, well, this is just part of how you are. And I also many times will inform the patient of that, that this is not, you know, some character flaw. This is how you're, you're wired. This is how your brain is built. So we have to accept that and treat it appropriately. There are a lot of similarities to how Dr. Fossmeyer treats his patients and how Dr. Koenig might treat his. Migraines are misunderstood. There's something people might tell you to shake off, to move on from. Part of Dr. Fossmeyer's job is explaining to his patients that they deserve treatment, that what they're feeling is valid and real. The migraine is actually a chemical disorder. It's a chronic recurrent neurovascular disorder. So it's a chemical disorder in the brain. It's how we're wired. So it's, it's kind of how your brain is built, um, but you can't see it structurally. It's a propensity that a certain trigger will cause that chemical to be released that causes migraine, uh, the chemical called CGRP calcitonin gene-related peptide. That is the chemical mechanism of migraine, and we're just wired that way. I say we because I've had migraines my whole life, uh, so it's, uh, it's truly a we. 90% of people with migraine have a family history of migraine, so my mom had them, my dad had them. In the day when my mom was having migraine headaches, um, there was no understanding of what the mechanism was. Um, they many times thought that there wasn't a real disorder. It was just a headache, right? Uh, and it wasn't. It was disabling for her. So she would have to sleep it off or um, she would be given narcotic medications uh, for it um, because that's all they had at the time. And likewise, his treatment strategy shifts with the realities of the condition. Like mental disorders, how you treat migraines has to be tailored to your patient. My treatment strategy is primarily change of lifestyle, that being um, just talking about staying well hydrated, not skipping meals, exercising on a regular basis, and then talking about whether the patient wants to pursue uh, prescription medication preventative therapy if their headaches suggest that, and also talking about specific therapies to stop migraines as they begin. Uh, so the chemical uh, mechanism is the CGRP. The treatment is a, called a triptan medication that turns off the release of that chemical CGRP that causes the migraine. So I talk about diagnosis, tell the patient, this is how I reached the diagnosis. What can the patient do to improve their headache frequency, their migraine headache frequency, and what can I do to help them in that regard with medications? I try and um, interact with the patient and make sure they're on board with what I'm recommending for therapy and what their approach is. Uh, so I always ask the patient, you know, are you somebody that's anti-medication? Would you like to try a vitamin therapy first that might take a little bit longer to work? So I try and get the patient involved in their care plan. And my discovery and the teaching to me has been that if you involve the patient in the care plan, they're much more likely to follow up on it. So uh, if they're involved and they wanna, they're on board with it, then that works better. Dr. Fossmeyer uses these strategies for himself, too. As I was leaving his office, I noticed his bike sitting in the corner. He rides to work every day, 
and leaves the bike there as an opener so that he can share with his patients that he has migraines too and has found what works best for him to treat them. A good bike ride every morning and afternoon. Psychiatry has come a long way. It's a hard field to understand all the different elements that affect a person's mind. There's biological and environmental and chemical and cultural. There are so many factors that need to be bridged and understood. And there's still a lot of work to do. But Dr. Koenig is optimistic. First and foremost, I think, is really increasing integration of mental health throughout the whole medical system. Having mental health services available, not only in our mental health clinic, but in our primary care clinics, and even hopefully in our specialty care clinics. So patients can access mental health treatment in the same clinic where they see their primary care doctor or their specialist. Many patients feel uncomfortable going to a mental health clinic or a psychiatric clinic, but are more comfortable receiving mental health care in their primary care clinic where they get their other medical care. And really, if we consider psychiatric care integrated with medical care, and it's really we use the same model of treatment, then it makes perfect sense that a patient would receive all the care they need in one clinic. So I think that's going to be uh, an evolution in the way mental health care is really provided. And then I think also a significant uh, development for Overlake along with integration is also uh, really providing counseling and therapy and we hope to actually have that available in our primary care clinics as well. So not only see a psychiatrist for medications or a diagnostic evaluation, but a therapist would be available in the primary care clinic as well for counseling. So you go see your primary doctor and you're getting your blood pressure checked and you happen your doctor screens you for depression and you, you score very highly on the, on the screening tool, then um, you, know, you have a counselor you can talk to right there in that visit even what we call a warm handoff, that kind of readily available mental health support, I think is likely going to be more available in the future, and that's, that's exciting. When we integrate mental health care into general practice, when we make it normal to discuss anxiety or depression at the same time that we test blood sugar levels, we make it something you don't have to hide. It becomes just another part of taking care of your body, like exercising and eating right. It becomes ordinary and not in an ignore it until it disappears kind of way. In that checking in with yourself, talking with others seriously about your mental health and what you personally need to do to keep it healthy is just a part of the system. Something to take in stride that's not scary or isolating. And that's a stride we can certainly get behind. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overheard from Overlake. I'm your host, Sarah Lebovitz. If you like this episode, subscribe and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred podcatcher is. Next time on Overheard, we're ending our season where everything begins with childbirth. This is Overheard from Overlake Medical Center, a healthy dose of stories about award-winning medical professionals and patient-centered care for the East Side. Overlake Medical Center, compassionate care for every life we touch.